appreciate the presence of each one today. We appreciate everybody's participation in worship, those who have led us and the preparation they've put into uh, leading us today. I was talking to Guy Mitchell the other day, and he said, uh, Bob, did you ever just close your eyes and listen to the singing? And um, I have to admit, I don't know that I've ever done that, but apparently he does from time to time. And just uh, how encouraging that is as we sing together and people sing out and sing strong. Doesn't really matter how well we sing or if we're on the note or, or flat or sharp a little bit. That's, that's really not all that important to us. But just uh, blending our voices together and praising God together and encouraging each other in song and, and uh, just listening to that. It's, it's encouraging, and I appreciate uh, that a great deal. As we sit down here, we're kind of at the front. We get the effect of all the voices coming our direction, and it's, uh, it is very encouraging indeed. And I would encourage the parents, encourage your children to sing. Tell them to sing out and sing strong as well, and, and uh, learn, uh, you know, learn to sing the songs and the words of the songs. And as we who are older... See, and here the ones who are younger, we think that they're going to carry the, that into the future. And that's, uh, that's an encouragement to us as well. And so I just appreciate that a great deal. I would maybe reassure Paul a little bit that the screen hasn't always been there, Paul. <laughs> In fact, it's relatively new. So if you, if you think uh, that worries you a little bit, well, I've never seen that before. Maybe my eyesight is bad. It's, it's not your eyes. It, it's, it's fairly, fairly new, and so don't be too upset about that. Appreciate Paul's good work today. Well, what did you want to be when you, grew, when you were little? When you grew up, what did you want to be? And if you're young and in that position now, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? And there might be lots of different answers to that question, a lot of, lot of different good answers to that question. And, and uh, some children, you know, if, if you were to ask them, they might say, I want to be a fireman, I want to be a firefighter, I want to be a policeman, I want to be a nurse or a doctor, marine biologist or something like that. What, what do you want to be when you grow up? Some people might think about achieving uh, something or some people might think about gaining and occupying a certain position or I want to be in politics or I want to be in a position where I can help people. And so we might think in, in, those, in those terms. It's not exactly what I want to talk about today when I ask the question, what, what do you want to be or what do you want to be when you grow up? I really want to talk about what kind of person do you want to be? Not, not what job you, you, you work at or what position you might hold, but what kind of person do you want to be? And you might become a teacher, but what, what kind of person do you want to be as a teacher? Or what kind of person do you want to be as a marine biologist or something like that. What, what kind of person do you want to be? Another way of asking that is, what kind of character do you want to possess? And when I say character, what I mean by that is, you know, a moral character, an ethical character. That has to do with being a good person or a bad person or a godly person or a wicked person. Or do you want to be a person who does right? Or do you not really care that much about doing right? What kind of person, kind of character do you want to possess as an adult? When you get older, as those of us who are adults, we might ask ourselves, what kind of man am I? What kind of woman am I? After all, 
If you were to own your own business and be very successful at it, if that was your goal in life, I want to own my own business, whatever that might be, and I want to be successful, but, but if you knew that I'm a cheater and a liar, but I own my own business and I make lots of money, what, what, what have we gained? Not, not a whole lot, at least not a whole lot that's meaningful in life. Well, let's look at a passage today that applies to men. What kind of man do you want to be? Last week we talked about this in connection with a woman. What kind of woman do you want to be? And look at Proverbs chapter 31 and look at that woman of excellence or worthy woman or worthy wife and the different characteristics that are attributed to her in that particular passage. We're going to look at a, a passage in the Bible today that addresses men or at least is made by a man. And you might think, well, listen, if you think about all the examples of men of excellence in the Bible, there are lots of, be, be a lot to choose from. There's Abraham or, or David or Joseph, certainly man of excellent character. Jesus would be the primary example that we might follow, but we want to go to the book of Job today. And so turn to the book of Job, and we're going to look at a particular passage uh, that uh, will address our question this morning. Now, you remember, we're not going to go into the, big, the story of Job to a great, a great extent, but just a word or two to remind us what the story of Job is all about. Now, Job tells us in Job chapter 1 that Job is a, really an outstanding man in many ways. He was blameless and upright, feared God, and turned away from evil. And so that's the kind of man that he was, one that feared God and turned away from evil and blameless and upright. He was a very successful man by worldly standards as well. He's very wealthy. And uh, read about his wealth there in verse 3. And his family life was really ideal. He was married. He had seven sons and three daughters. And so he got ten children all together. Seven of them are sons and three of them are daughters. And that, it, uh, that's uh, just a, a wonderful situation. Well, Satan comes before the Lord. And the Lord presents Satan with an opportunity. Have you considered my servant Job? And, and so the Lord allows Satan. Now Job doesn't know anything about this conversation. But the Lord allows Satan to, to try to draw Job away from the Lord. And so he takes a couple of different approaches. First of all, he takes away everything he's got. Takes away all his wealth, takes away his cattle and his herds and, and all of that. Just takes all of that away and uh, thinking that, well, you know, if, if I take all of God's blessings away from Job, Job will renounce God. And of course, that, that didn't work. Now, now, God didn't allow, at this stage of the story, He didn't allow Satan to go beyond that in trying to draw Job away. And, and when that didn't work, well, then the Lord said, okay, now you can touch his body. Now you can inflict his body or afflict his body in some way. And so Satan afflicts Job's body with just a, some sort of terrible disease, terrible condition. He's in excruciating pain. He's suffering. And that goes on for, for a while. Three of his friends come to him. They don't help at all. You know? In fact, they accuse Job. Job, you must have brought this situation on yourself. You must have done something wrong, and God is punishing you for the wrong that you've done. What you need to do is just fess up, admit your sin, 
and then God will, God will be good to you again. And all of this, however, Job maintains his innocence. Now, now not sinlessness, but innocence. I haven't done anything deserve, deserving of this, of what I'm going through. All the loss, all the tragedy, all the pain, all of that. Now, I may not be perfect, but I haven't done anything deserve to deserve this. In fact, he uses words like guiltless and righteous and just and innocent to describe himself in the book of Job. And that brings us then to chapter 31. Job chapter 31. And again, in this particular passage, Job is maintaining his innocence. He's maintaining his righteousness. And he says, he goes through a, a series of statements and uh, mentions a series of categories of sin. And wh what he says in effect is, now if I've done this, I wouldn't complain about my punishment, my ordeal, because I'd be deserving of now. And if I had done this, I, I wouldn't have any right to object to what's going on. But I haven't done those things is the implication. I haven't done those things. I've been righteous. I've been a godly man. I've been upright. I've been blameless in my way. And so I don't understand why this is, why this is happening to me. We're going to look at this particular chapter and look at what Job says and just the different things he, he raises about a person's character. Now, he's denying he's been involved in these things, but, you know, if we can take this to heart and if we can kind of uh, uh, develop the character of Job, well, then we can be a blameless and upright person, one that fears God and turns away from evil. So look at Job chapter 31. We don't have time to read through the... We might end up reading through the whole chapter, but we'll do that as we proceed through the discussion today. He begins by saying in verse 1, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? So he talks about his attitude toward and his relationship with the opposite sex. He comes back to this in verse 9 where he says, If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's doorway... May my wife grind for another and let others kneel down over her? For that would be a lustful crime. Moreover, it would be an iniquity punishable by judges. For it would be fire that consumes to abaddon and would uproot all my increase. Now, so in other words, you know, if I had gotten involved, now he's married, but if I had gotten involved with other women... Now, that'd be a crime worthy of punishment. But, but I haven't been involved in that, is, is what he's arguing. To be an upright, to be a moral man, a godly man, a man of excellence, men, we need to be careful in our attitude toward and behavior toward the opposite sex. It's interesting to me that he starts with that there in verse, verse 1. I've made a covenant with my eyes. The idea is, I've made a commitment. I've made a commitment with myself and with my eyes not to gaze at young women. I've just made that commitment with myself, and I, I'm just not going to do it. The idea of gazing at a virgin there in, in verse 1, the idea of gazing, well, no, we know what it means to gaze. It doesn't mean just a, a passing glance or not necessarily even to look at something, but you're gazing at it, you're looking at it intensely, you're, you're focused on it, 
And so that's the idea. What, what Job is saying here is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, looking on a woman to lust after her. Now I've made a commitment. I'm not going to look at women with the intent of lusting after them. I'm not going to gaze at them. I'm not going to focus my attention on them and think indecent and un, un, ungodly and inappropriate things about them. I'm just not going to do that. And then he comes back to it in, in verse 9. If my heart has been enticed by a woman or I've looked at my neighbor's doorway, may my wife grind for another. And that, that idea, may my wife grind for another or may uh, others bow over her, is probably a, a reference to, uh, well, may what I'm thinking about doing to this woman be done to my wife. It's probably the idea. So look at what he, look at what he says there. If my heart has been enticed by a woman. And so if, if, if a woman makes advances toward me, entices me, tries to lure me in, attempts to seduce me, I'm not going to, I'm not going to yield to that. I'm going to resist. And so if my heart has been enticed, I've just made a commitment, I'm not going to let that happen. If I've lurked at my neighbor's doorway, well, what's he talking about there? If I've looked for the opportunity to get involved with another woman, if I kind of hang around, if I look for opportunities, if I'm waiting for the chance, well, then, then I deserve this punishment. And so what, what Job is saying is, look, I've taken measures to be careful in my relationships with women who are not my wife. I'm not going to look at them inappropriately. I'm not going to yield to their advances if they come. And I tell you what, I'm not going to look for an opportunity. I'm not going to look for the opportunity to, to get involved with somebody like that. Well, we know that, that's how those things happen, isn't it? Yeah, you begin to look a little bit. And then there's a little talk, there's a little suggestion, there's a little inappropriate conversation, and then there's a little touching, and then there you're looking for the opportunity to get together, and then but there's a process that ends up in sin. And what Job is saying is, I'm not going to let that process begin. If somebody tries to initiate it, I'm not going to respond, <laughs> and I'm going to avoid every opportunity in other words, for example, Romans chapter 13 tells us, I'm not going to give or make provision for the flesh, Romans 13 and verse 14. That's good advice, isn't it? Isn't it interesting that in the New Testament, in several passages in the New Testament, at least multiple passages, sexual sin is, is identified and, and we're encouraged to avoid it. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither fornicators. The first one. <laughs> first one in the list. Not either fornicators or idolaters or so forth. And then you turn over to Galatians chapter 5, something similar. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are fornication. The first one. <laughs> and and that's, that's fairly consistent. Now, no, it may not always be the case, but consistently, warning against sexual sin is at the top of the list. What we see in Job, it, it, it just corresponds. Chapter 31, verse 1, <laughs> I've made a commitment 
not to gaze at the women. Now, if we, can, if we can do that, we can be a man of excellence. If we want to be an honorable man, we need to be careful in our behavior toward women. Do you, do you want a preacher? <laughs> you want a preacher who's flirting with other women, who's not, not his wife, or, or maybe that little suggestive conversation? You don't want a preacher like that, do you? I wouldn't want a preacher like that. We want an honorable person. You want elders like that. We want honorable men to serve as elders. And so if we, if we see that that is a quality of honor, well, then we all, all of us men, especially women, but men are our focus this morning, need to develop that. Be, be careful in your relationship with other women. Well, let's go back to Job. we got several of these categories to go through. Not much time this morning, but let us go back to Job chapter 31. Let's look at the next section. Now, this is in verse 5. If I have walked with falsehood, and my foot has hastened after deceit, let him weigh me with accurate scales, and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned from the way, or my heart followed my eyes, if any spot is stuck to my hands, let me sow and another eat, and let my crops be uprooted." And so Job talking about here is, is being a, a false person, being an untrustworthy or an untrue person. It might be in, in his business dealings. If the punishment corresponds to the offense, it may be that he has in mind, verse 6, just uh, not being honest in business and having, uh, you know, inaccurate weights. And so somebody comes to Job and wants to buy a pound of grain well, he's got his balance there, and he puts some grain on one side, and he puts a pound weight on the other side, but the pound weight's not really a pound. It's only like three-quarters of a pound, and that, that way he can make a little bit more money and sell a little less grain, and, and that may be the idea. If I've been false in my business dealings, well, may somebody come along and cheat me as well, you know, is, is the idea. But, but remember, he's saying, I haven't been dishonest. I haven't walked in falsehood. So the passage really would apply to being false and deceitful in general. The Bible encourages us to be honest people, to tell the truth. It's not always easy to tell the truth, but we're called upon to be honest and trustworthy and people of integrity, people who tell the truth. Now, Kevin and I have been talking about this for several sessions in our podcast, by the way. If you're not listening to the podcast, I want to encourage you to. A little shameless plug there. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. There are six things the Lord hates, seven are abomination to him. Verse 19, a false witness that utters lies. Now, God is a God of truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's going to send the Holy Spirit to his apostles to guide them into all the truth. There's a premium placed on telling the truth. In the Bible, we want to be people that are honest, and we want to be truth-tellers. Colossians chapter 3 is a New Testament passage that addresses this. He says in verse 9, Do not lie to one another, since you've laid aside the old man with its evil practices. Don't lie. Tell the truth. Like I said a moment ago, it's not always easy to tell the truth. Some of the greatest people of faith in the Bible have gotten swept up in dishonesty. Abraham did, David did, Peter did. And uh, they all got swept up and were dishonest at one time or another, contrary to their character, but 
they became dishonest in one reason or another. Sometimes we want to avoid trouble for ourselves, so we tell a little lie. You know, the truth is going to get me in trouble, so I'll tell a little lie. Maybe I can avoid that trouble. Or we don't want to embarrass ourselves, or we kind of want to enhance our standing in the eyes of others. I, I want them to think highly of me. And so we don't just embellish. We embellish to the point of being dishonest <laughs> because we want to enhance our standing we want to avoid loss. If I tell the truth, well, then I'm, I've got something to lose. Or it might just be out of concern for others. Well, I don't want to make him feel bad, so I'll just, you know, I kind of fudge the truth a little bit. And so we say yes when the truth is no. We say we did when we didn't. And we say it is when it's not. We need to consistently tell the truth. And again, not easy to do. It's difficult to do. That's why, because we all recognize how hard that is to do all the time. And that's why people think so highly of those who are honest people. I tell you what, he's going to tell you the truth. I tell you what, he's, going to, he's a man of integrity. You can depend on what he says. He's straightforward. He doesn't cheat. He doesn't lie. He doesn't mislead you. And people, people realize and, and consider that a, an honorable characteristic. It was in Job, it ought to be in us as well. If I have despised the claim of my male or female slaves when they filed a complaint against me, what, what then could I do when God arises and when He calls me to account, what will I answer Him? Did, he, did not He who made me in the womb make Him? And the same one fashion us in the womb? I like the way the NIV reads here, If I have denied justice to my servants... Now, Job was a wealthy man. He had a lot of servants. On occasion, one of the servants might have a complaint or a grievance or a dispute with him. He might think he's being treated unfairly or his workload is too heavy or the work conditions are not safe or he's not compensated en enough. And so he's got a complaint. Job says, I always try to be just in these matters. I always try to be fair. I'm listening to what my servant has to say. I'm considering what he has to say. And I want to deal with him with justice and fairness. And so Job was a man who was concerned with justice, with, with being fair. Job argues he has administered justice in these cases. And we want to be men and women of justice as well. He makes two observations here. What if God called me to account for the way I treat those who work for me? You know, I want to be fair with these servants of mine because God might call me to account and ask me about how I dealt with them. And I want to be able to say I've dealt with them fairly and justly. I've tried to do the right thing by them. And so, and so he, that's a motivation. But he also says, didn't the same one fashion both of us in the womb? You know, I, I, I'm the estate owner. I'm the head and the master of the estate. And, and these people are working for me. But, but really, God made him just like he made me. He's made in God's image just like I'm made in God's image. And from that point of view, we're equals. And so I want to treat them fairly. I want to treat them justly. I want to treat them with dignity and honor because they are made in the image of God, which is really the foundation for justice and in our society, or in our individual conduct. Every person, regardless of 
how much money they make or what economic standard they live on or how much education they got or what kind of job. Or Every person is made in God's image and as a result deserves to be treated with honor and dignity and, and justice. Job is an upright man because he treats others with just, even the lowly, he's fair to everyone. You might say that he does unto others as he, he would have them do unto him. And so he takes all of that into account. Justice and fairness, justice and righteousness are fundamental uh, foundations. They're fundamental to the kind of godly society we want to strive for. God loves righteousness and justice, Psalm 33, verse 5. To do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice, Psalm 21 in verse 3. So we need to make sure that we are just and fair in our dealings with others, even the lowly. There's a long section beginning in verse 16 and going down through verse 23. And so let's just read through this. If I've kept the poor from their desire, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the orphan has not shared it. But from my youth he grew up with me as with a father, and from infancy I guided her. If I've seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or that the needy had no covering, if his loins have not thanked me, and if he has not been warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have lifted up my hand against the orphan because I saw I had support in the gate, let my shoulder fall from the socket and my arm be broken off at the elbow. For calamity from God is a terror to me, and because of His majesty I can do nothing. And so Job was a wealthy man, but he didn't let his prosperity blind him to the need of others. It seems that the Bible talks a lot about being concerned about the needy and making sure that those who are in need have what they need, especially if we have the resources to do that. If we've got more than we need, make sure that we take at least some of that and help others who are in need. That seems to be a very common theme in the Bible. In fact, I suppose if we were to start with Genesis and just go through the Bible and preach what's in that passage, we'd be talking about this quite a bit. And so Job says, May God's punishment come upon me if I neglect those who are in need. In chapter 22, in verse 6, Eliphaz, who's one of Job's friends, in fact, accuses him, You've taken pledges without cause, and you've stripped men naked. You know, you've taken advantage of people, and you've made them poorer, is the accusation. But Job says, No, that's not, that's not correct. I haven't done that. Psalm 41, verse 1 says, How blessed is he who considers the helpless. And you remember in Amos chapter 2, God is pronouncing upon a number of nations His judgment because of their misdeeds and because of their evil. And He says, For three transgressions of Israel and for four I'll knock revoke its punishment. They sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of shoes. The Lord intends for us who have been blessed beyond what we need to be mindful of those who don't have what they need. The worthy woman did this. Proverbs 31, verse 20, she extends her hands to the poor and stretches out her hands to the needy. Do you want to be an honorable man? 
Do you want to be a man who has respect of other men and God? Be generous with those who have need. Do you remember the story in Luke chapter 16, the rich man and Lazarus? you remember that story? Uh, Jesus tells a story about a rich man who fared sumptuously every day. You know, he's wealthy. He had more than he needed. He lived a good life. He lived in luxury, had plenty to eat, a nice house and all that. And then there was a poor man who was laid at his gate every day. His body was full of sores. Even the dogs came up and licked his sores. And they, and they both died. Both the rich man and the poor man, whose name was Lazarus, died. The rich man lifted up his eyes in torment. He was in anguish. And, and Lazarus, the poor man, was taken to, by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Remember the, what the rich man said to Abraham, send Lazarus down here to, you know, take a drop of water and put it on my tongue and cool my tongue. And, and you remember what Abraham says to him in response? Child, remember that during your life you received the good things and likewise Lazarus, bad things. Now he's being comforted here and you're in agony. That's in response to the rich man's plea Abraham, have mercy on me. The, the point of the story is that the rich man showed no mercy to the poor man. And in the judgment, he has shown no mercy, is he? And so that illustrates the point for us. We need to people, be people who show mercy, who see the needs of those who are less fortunate. As we have opportunity, we have resources, we want to respond to that. Now, Job did that. And he's an honorable man for it. Then there's a series, uh, and just rapidly, a series, I think, of, of four different ideas here in this last section, going to begin in, let's see, I guess that's verse 24. If I've put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I've gloated because my wealth was great and because my hand had secured so much, he doesn't believe that his wealth entitles him to privilege and position and respect. He doesn't trust in riches. There are a lot of people who trust in riches, who believe that, well, my wealth, you know, puts me in a position where I deserve people's respect. And my, you know, my material things put me in a position where I deserve privilege. Well, Job didn't think that way. He didn't think his Riches entitled him to privilege or position or respect. He's already discussed his willingness to share his wealth and do good with it. Job didn't trust in riches. He trusted in God. Job 19, verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives. It would be easy for us to trust in riches. We live in a materialistic world. Our world places a great deal of emphasis on how much money we've got and what kind of car we drive and where we live. Great deal of emphasis on that. And it might be, it would be easy for us to put our confidence and trust in that. That's, that's really what I'm living for and how I measure my success. We might even do that unwitting, unwittingly. Jesus warns against the deceitfulness of riches. But it is not honorable for a person to hoard his wealth. And it's not honorable for a person simply to live for, for the dollar. There's more to life than that. And Job exemplifies that for us. The second thing he says in this particular section is this, if I've looked at the sun when it shone or the moon going in splendor and my heart became secretly enticed and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth, 
that too would have been an iniquity calling for judgment. For I would have denied God above. This is a reference to the worship of the sun and the worship of the moon and the worship of the stars and, and, and being devoted to them and, and doing obeisance to them by, you know, kissing, blowing a kiss or kissing toward, toward them. If I have appealed to idols, the sun and the moon and the stars, well, then I'd very much be deserving of the situation that I'm in. The worship of the planets, the sun, moon, and the stars is very much condemned in Scripture. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19, Beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, to be drawn away and worship them and serve them. Those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. And so, very clear warning. Don't get caught up in worshiping these things like the nations do. And Job says, now if I've done that, well, that I'd be perfectly deserving of what God has done with me. But, but I haven't done that. It's interesting in verse 28, did you catch that? If I've done this, I would have denied God above. Job recognizes that the sun is up there and the moon is up there and the stars are up there, but God is even further up there above all of those things. And He's the one that I worship and He's the one that I'm faithful to and He's the one that I'm going to follow. Do you want to be an honorable man? Be loyal to God through difficulties. Persevere. Be faithful. It's not always going to be easy. And don't, first time we get into hardship and get into trouble, say, I don't believe in God anymore, and renounce Him and deny Him. If there was a God out there, He wouldn't let these bad things happen to me. No, don't be that way. Be faithful. We may not understand why things are happening, but be faithful, even through trial. The third thing that he says in this section is this. Have I rejoiced at the extinction of my enemy or exulted when, the when evil befell him? No, uh, I've not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life in a curse. Have the men of my tent not said, Who can find one that has not been satisfied with his meat? For the alien has not, uh, the alien has not lodged outside. I've opened my doors to the traveler. You know, isn't it human nature for us when our enemy... Uh, meets with calamity or tragedy. What, isn't it human nature for us to say, that's great, I'm glad to see it. Couldn't be happier for him, you know. That, that's human nature, but Job's not like that. He doesn't rejoice at the calamity of his neighbor. What he sees is the tragedy, the pain, the loss of human life, the suffering, the hardship on those who are left behind. And he understands that there's no winners in these situations. And so here are people that have wished me harm, and now harm has come to them. That, that's not a victory. That's a loss. We hear that sometimes on the news. There'll be tragedy, or there'll be uh, tragedy at the hands of some violent person, and the victims will say something, you know, that uh, really looks beyond vengeance and retribution. And we think, wow, that's what an honorable way to react. Well, that's the way Job reacts. And finally, if I covered my transgressions like Adam, or some versions might just simply say man, by hiding my iniquity in my bosom because I feared the great multitude and the contempt of families terrified me, kept silent, did not go out of doors. Do I have secret sins that I've tried to cover up from other people? 
All of us, most of us anyway, have things that we've done in the past that we hope nobody finds out about. But Job is saying, look, my, my, my life's an open book. Have I done things that I try to hide from everybody? Well, well no. You know, do I do things secretly and, and I'm afraid to go out of doors and, and people see and, well, there's that guy that did this. No, no, I, I haven't lived that way at all. I don't have any skeletons in my closet. I, I've lived as an honorable man in the sight of all people. You want to be an honorable person? Don't do things that you're going to have to hide from other people. Okay? Don't do things that you think, I'm, I'm going to have to hide this. I don't want people to find out. I don't want the church to find out or the preacher or the elders to find out because they might think lower of me or think less of me. No, just don't do it. Don't do what you have to hide. Job is confident that what he's saying about himself is true. If you look at the end of the chapter, verse 35, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Behold, here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. And the indictment which my adversary has written, surely I would carry it on my shoulder, would bind it to myself like a crown. So in other words, what he's saying is, look, here's, here's my claim. I've written it down. I'm going to present it to God. And he knows that what I'm saying is true. It's true. He's confident that what he's saying about himself is true. He's careful in his relationship with the opposite sex. He's honest. He's just. He's generous. He doesn't trust in gold. He's faithful in trial. He doesn't rejoice at the calamity of his enemies. He doesn't do things in secret that he's got to be ashamed of and has to, to hide from other people. He's confident in that. How about us? Can we be confident about those things in our lives? What do you want to be when you grow up? Well, how about being a man like Job, chapter 31 of, of the book of Job? How about developing these qualities? And maybe we were already grown up, but we can still work on developing these qualities as well. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together and to, to worship you and to sing these songs and, and to pray together and to remember the death of your Son through the Lord's Supper, to study from your Word, Father, we pray that the things we've done today have been pleasing to you, that they've been beneficial to us. Father, we pray that you will help each one of us think about ourselves and our character and what it is as it compares to the standard that you've set for us. Help us, Father, to continue to develop to meet that standard. Father, if we're doing things well, help us, Father, to do them even better. And Father, if we fall short in some areas, help us to improve and help us to be men and women of excellence in your sight. Now, Father, we pray that we'll begin that, that task today immediately and that we'll continue it each day as our years go by. We pray for your help in these areas. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you're here today and you're